Raymond Williams said, there is wealth only in people and in their land and seas. Uses of wealth which abandon people are so profoundly contradictory on a par with the physical disasters which follow from reckless exploitation of the land and seas. An economic policy which would begin from real people in real places and which would be designed to sustain their continuing life requires a big shift in our thinking. My guest on this episode is an advocate of such a shift in our thinking. Calvin Jones is an economist specialising in sustainability, energy and regional development and is a professor with Cardiff University's Business School. Croeso Calvin, thank you for joining me. Shmine, thanks for having me. Can you first of all explain why the climate crisis means that we need a big shift in our economic thinking and why classic economics just doesn't cut it? Well, I think the numbers we've seen over the last few years especially have shown that we are busting open the planet's ability to keep a stable climate for a number of reasons. And these reasons cut across almost every aspect of our lifestyles. So when I look, for example, recently at the carbon footprint of Herbert you can see that the emissions are coming from pretty much equally things like heating houses, transport, jobs, food and drink, you know, and consumption spend on, you know, bits and pieces we all spend in our lives. And so in every one of those areas, we have to change fundamentally the way that we access services, use products, then get rid of products at the end of their lives, if we do that. And that can't happen in the current economic system with the current economic incentives. And the problem that we have is that for generations, and particularly since 1980, we've been taught that money is the way that we value things, that we assess their effectiveness, efficiency, you know, contribution to welfare, well-being, however you want to put it. And that starting point ignores physicality, it ignores materials, it ignores ecosystems. And anything you try and bolt onto that fundamentally monetary system will always be a really poor representation and will always end up advantaging things you can value in monetary terms. So when we start with kind of mainstream economics, assuming that our fundamental lives are economic in nature, we just start from completely the wrong viewpoint. That makes sense. Now, place is important to you. Can you explain why? Yeah, I I grew up in the Ronda, in the poor Ronda, not the posh one, I have to say. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, growing up there in the 1980s made me understand, well, two things, I think. Firstly, that, you know, without being too polemic about it, the world is against the working class. There are, the, the structure of the capitalist system does mean that whenever there's a chance to reduce wages, you reduce wages because that increased profit. And when you find that this, the rules are largely written by people who are owners of capital, not owners of labour, the rules are skewed. So that, you know, came to me early on in life in the, in the place I grew up in top of the Ronde Var. And the other thing is that the things that were valuable and turned out to be valuable through things like the minor strike, you know, community and communitarianism, you know, a sense of identity, the ability to use our green spaces to escape from things, not least school, because I was only 14, 15 at the time. All those things aren't valuable necessarily in the system we have. So those, I think, two things have remained with me throughout my professional life. And I think, you know, the understanding that, that those things have become more scarce over time, you know, in terms of community identity and the ability of the working class to, to push back back against difficult structures and that sense of the innate unfairness of it all is really what's driven my research you know for 30 years now. Looking at Wales's economic position and the gap between what is raised in taxes and what is spent by government in places like the Ronda and other places where there are high levels of poverty as well why do we need to reduce that gap and how do you think we can do that? The gap 
between what us economists call the tax base and the spending base is a real one. You know, obviously my colleagues at universities, governance centre have shown that over a number of years. We need to reduce it because if we are going to either have a stronger and more listened to voice within some sort of UK union, or we are going to somehow forge a path outside the, the UK union. I'm not. I'm not particularly zealous about political independence. Um, although I, I can see that it's you know the more sensible thing to do in, in many respects. I think if we're going to have any sustainable future, then we need to look at our fiscal gap and understand that that is a a fundamental outcome, really central outcome of a system which is unbalanced, yes, within the UK, where we get resources dragged away from Wales to the southeast in London, be those skilled labour, which leaves our schools and universities and goes off to work in London, whether that's natural resources in terms of wind and formerly coal and other things, whether that's interesting companies get bought up and taken to the centre. And all that adds to the fact we can't make our own wealth, our financial wealth, if you like, um, and get ourselves out of that gap. But at the same time, this is a microcosm of a macrocosm, which sees huge billions of tons of materials move from the global south to the global north and billions of dollars of wealth move from the global south to the global north within similar sorts of structures, capitalist structures. So for me, the recognition of the gap is a recognition of the fundamental unfairness and unevenness of development over space. And what I have in my latest paper called The Triumph of the Placeless, where agencies, people and, and institutions and companies can move across spaces and exploit different spaces, get a kind of easy ride in global capitalism. So I think the recognition of that gap has, is a recognition of the fundamental unfairness of the system. And then the solving of the gap is effectively, for, I think, for Wales to extricate ourselves from that system, to actually not be a capitalist nation anymore. And I think it's the only way we'll ever find any sort of sustainable future. Welsh poverty seems intractable. Is Welsh poverty inevitable, do you think? No, it's it's an incredibly difficult problem to solve with the tools that we have at hand. You know, I mean, I remember doing a programme years ago um, on the future of the valleys. And as I think I said in the programme, I'd be stealing somebody else's words here, possibly John Adams from Newport. The, there are problems, there are predicaments. And valleys is a predicament because you can't solve it. You can't solve the problem of the valleys. How do you solve a problem like Maria? You know, it's really difficult within the system that we have. If you assume a largely commodified, globalised, competitive landscape for the vast majority of the services and products that we buy or consume, then um, the valleys have very little to offer. You know, we have an underskilled population, underqualified population. We have poor physical transport links. We have reasonable broadband links. We don't own or control... The, the resources that we would need to own and control in order to make a competitive position in the world. So in this system, poverty is really difficult to get away from. But of course, you can imagine a system where the resources that we do have were much more equitably distributed um, than they are within what is largely a UK tax system, probably with small tweaks and maybe larger tweaks coming our way. And secondly, where people just didn't throw wealth out of the communities by buying iPhones on Netflix. I mean, that's the problem, is that we spend, individual households spend thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds on non-local services. And if you do that, it's really hard then to retain enough money in your communities to keep people fed and watered and, and warm. How can we sell an alternative lifestyle to people, though? This is the lifestyle that they are told that they need to be aspiring to. When I was discussing this sort of stuff 12 years ago, when I was writing a paper called Wales in the Energy Crunch, when I was warning, futilely as it turned out, about the problems of fossil fuel prices and how that was all going to be the death of us all, the point I made then was that we would very swiftly move to a renewables energy system 
if the Saudi Arabian government was toppled by what was then Al-Qaeda and they stopped exporting oil, because the system would fall apart around us and we would be forced to find a fire exit, if you like. And I think, unfortunately, my professional experience has suggested that the fire needs to happen before people remove. You know, you can smell the smoke now. You can see that the system is falling apart. This cost of living crisis is just one in an increasing frequency, accelerating frequency of climate and energy related issues and inequality issues are all interrelated, which are not going away. And we're boiling a frog, the water's getting warmer. And at some point, huge swathes of people will not be able to eat. And at that point, we will have to find some solution. Now, that's not ideal. I would much prefer it if people had listened to me blow my own trumpet, but like 15 years ago and, and said, okay, Carl, we understand this. We have to start building wind farms everywhere and solar PV everywhere. And we used to need to build a tidal lagoon no matter what it costs. If that had happened, then we would be in a very different position. The, the best time to move is to always 20 years ago and the second best time is always now. And these discussions around how we can make fairness at the heart of tax systems, universal basic services, whatever it is that we decide is the way to go, has to happen in a very radical way, I think. You said you're not evangelical about independence, but you think it's probably the best way to go. Can you explain more about why you've arrived at that position? Yeah, I think partially it's a small p political kind of understanding that there is no appetite in any UK political party for genuine electoral reform. I mean, I'm not a party political animal at all, but I can see how, and when I talk to friends who are fairly cognizant with UK Labour, you can, you can see the constitutional issues are very, very minor in that party. Obviously, the Tories go nowhere near it, and the Dems will probably not be in a position to push through anything like the sort of federated UK that some elements of Labour, McAnthony and one or two others are pushing out. I can't see that happening. And in the absence of any any fairer constitutional settlement or more decentralised constitutional settlement, which genuinely recognises the climate and nature emergencies at the heart of that settlement. In the absence of those things happening, I think independence is probably the only way that Wales can struggle towards some sort of kind of new birth as a genuinely responsible region. So I, I'm, I'm not like uh, inverted commas Welsh Nat. Um, I have been accused of being a unionist running dog on Twitter in the past. I'm not that either. My ultimate outcome is fairness and ecological sensibleness. And I think probably the most likely way to get those things is by Wales being on its own. How can we get there, though? We want people to be better off as a result of independence. So how do we get there? A bit of context for this. I think I may get the number slightly wrong, but in the 2011 census, about 23% of people living here weren't born in Wales. Okay, so if we are going to get in, in anywhere near a kind of indie ref Scottish situation, we have to persuade lots of people who've come to Wales for very varied reasons, some of them to contribute massively, others to contribute less, to vote in favour of, of independence. And to do that in a way which doesn't just replicate a British state, but smaller. Because there's no point in pretending we're going to be like a nice little Britain, but smaller and slightly different. This radical vision has to be somehow different to what the UK is doing. Frankly, my slightly pessimistic view is that we are much more likely to be kicked out than leave. So I can imagine a Scottish referendum, particularly if the Johnson government gets worse, will eventually somehow have to be held. Scotland might leave. There will be a united Ireland. And England will look at Wales and think, why the hell are we stuck with this lot of whiners on the West Coast? And they will think, okay, if you are, for example, a German, a nice middle-class German, you don't have to own Greece to have a second home there, do you? They might think. You know, and the same is true of many other places. There's no particular reason why England needs to, inverted commas, own Wales or for Wales and England to be sort of rump UK for, for, I say, placeless people who can employ their capital across lots of different places to exploit 
places in Wales. There's no reason that there has to be a political union for that to happen because you know the structures that exploit Wales, if you think Wales is exploited, are largely international and a spatial. The, the idea of the it's the English's fault, I think is a very old-fashioned one. So I can see it's been thrown out. I think that's the most likely outcome for Wales to become independent. And then we will really be in dire straits for quite a while, I think. Well, that would be a problem if we arrive at that position without a plan. Mm-hmm. And whether we achieve independence by campaigning for it and by people wanting it through consent or by any other route like the one you've just described, we've got to be ready economically, structurally, institutionally. Wales is not ready yet and we need to be ready. So how do we get there as quickly as possible? Well, I mean, I think and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do this obviously in my as, as far as I can in my professional life, both in the university and now I'm currently a board member of Natural Resources Wales. I think the, the easiest thing to do is just take the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act seriously. I think if we did that, if we if we genuinely thought, how would we achieve these seven goals? And I know the act is a bit of a mess in many ways, but how would we do that? Genuinely do that, become a responsible country, become a healthy country, become a sustainably prosperous country. How would we do that? whilst bearing in mind that the climate and nature emergencies are the overriding lens for everything, if we adopted that approach to all our policies, and I think to be fair to the government, you know, things like the moratorium and road building, the, the willingness to try to not quite renationalize, but but take bus franchising back into the Senate power arena, we can see unfolding a path towards a genuinely fairer Wales. And I think one which we can start moving down in advance of any constitutional change. There's lots of stuff we haven't done, particularly in energy, which is my area, but in protecting our landscapes in terms of engaging with foreign direct investment companies who come here, in changing our tax system as far as we're able to make it fairer. You know, the free school stuff is another area. We've moved ahead of the UK stroke England in a number of ways. I think if we pushed further and faster at that, we would come to a, a rising understanding of what a kind of independent ways might look like. And I think we've got many of the tools now, so we don't have to wait at all. So what's stopping this happening then? If I had one quick answer, it's the unwillingness of governments, certainly historically, to tell inverted commas consumers what to do. And I think that the biggest issue we haven't dealt with, there's some stuff in the supply side which is difficult, but the kind of consumption economy, the inability to move out of that, that lifestyle we all have is really difficult. And we will need to see very significant interventions around, take one example, congestion charging in cities, accepting we are going to degrade the inverted commas competitiveness of cities to protect air quality, maybe, and to reduce climate emissions, to reduce as far as we are able within legislation, the, the reduction ecosystems quality, so that people understand that jobs can only be had when they are genuinely sustainable jobs. I think these these sorts of things are very difficult for governments to do. And I, you know, I, I understand that I'm at the same site on the inside now being part of Natural Resources Wales, and the systems take a long time to change. But I think we have to do and we have to be much more radical than we have in the past. And it's going to upset a lot of people. But then I think you know, the Welsh government, for better or worse, people trust Welsh Labour. You can see that in the last election. Trust them through COVID. They rewarded them with a virtual majority. I think they have electoral space to do it. Then I think we actually could go quite a long way. So political will is essential in all of this then. Calvin, you've given us a lot to think about there. Much food for thought. Thank you very much for your contribution, Diolch and Thank you. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. 
And finally, Dialk to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast.